when Jesus gave the pattern for prayer that we've been looking at over uh, these last number of weeks, but uh, turn to Luke 17. In Matthew 6, it says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In Luke 17, beginning with verse 11, on the way to Jerusalem, he, that's Jesus, was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. What precious words, Lord, as you have given us this wonderful pattern of prayer. Lord, thank you for your word, for preserving it, for your people down through the centuries and for us today. And we pray that you would teach us, that you would move us, that you would uh, change in us those things that need to be changed, that you would bring about repentance where that is needed, that you would give encouragement where we are in need of that. Thank you. That whether we know it or not, our greatest needs are filled in you. We are grateful in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's talk Bible versions. A lot of folks, maybe a number of you, when you came to Christ or maybe when you were growing up, you used the King James Version of the Bible. 
in the past. The most literal translation, and when I say literal translation, I'm saying from the Hebrew and the Greek, has generally been considered the New American Standard or the Revised Standard. But uh, Revised Standard had some issues because uh, there were those that were translators that were coming from an unbelieving perspective. And so it tended to taint uh, the way they would translate. So the New American Standard was uh, considered uh, probably the most literal. When I was in seminary, a number of my professors were working on the New International Version uh, and that particular translation. And so for about the first 25 years of my ministry, that's what I used. I just, uh, I liked hearing the stories about it uh, as they were translating, and so I began using it, and I loved the New International. Now, the thing to understand about that is it's not as literal, but it was considered much more readable. It was uh, uh, what's called uh, uh, dynamic equivalency. So they started with the original and then they uh, translated, but not as concerned about the word for word, but they wanted it to be readable. So many evangelicals use the New American Standard or uh, the New International Version when... Uh, this church started, uh, the session endorsed the New American Standard uh, as uh, not that you had to use it, but that, that that was a preferred translation. In the early 2000s, a new translation uh, was made, and, and that was the English Standard Version. And several years ago, our session endorsed that. The English Standard Version, by the way, this may be good if you're thinking about Bibles that you're going to buy for somebody uh, at Christmas. The English Standard Version had, in many people's mind, the best of both the New American Standard and the New International Version. It was uh, much more readable, idiomatic, uh, and able to be understood, but it was still a very strict translation from the originals. Um, many, many of the scholars that uh, we would listen to, R.C. Sproul and uh, Sinclair Ferguson and others, uh, have endorsed that. And our denomination actually uses that with uh, their Sunday school curriculum. So I, I tell you all that. Uh, because these three versions that uh, I mentioned, the New International, the English Standard Version, the New American Standard, all agree on a textual problem that we have in the passage before us. Now, when I say a textual problem, it's, uh, it's not a problem that we, we don't know uh, what the issue is here. But rather, what, what happened is they were using older and better manuscripts when they were translating uh, than those with the King James that translated the King James had. 
So they used better transcripts, and so when they see an issue, uh, they confront it, and if anything, that should give us more confidence that what we have before us is uh, the Word of God. So let's take a look at that, uh, and, and here's basically where, where we start. In Matthew 6, 6, it says, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And some of your versions may say, or the evil one. And then, in the English Standard Version, you have to go down to a footnote. And it says, some manuscripts add, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. So that's the issue, isn't it? We, when we pray that, we always include that. We just sang it. If we had stopped before that, it would have felt like half a song, right? And when we read this in Luke and in uh, Matthew, it seems like it's being cut short because most of us in learning the Lord's Prayer have always had that phrase there. And so, what, what are we going to do about that? How do, how do we handle that? Well, all of those versions that have made use of the best manuscripts say that should not be included right there. And so I, because I don't know more than those who did the translation, I have to agree with that. That in Matthew and in Luke, that it stops before what we sometimes call the conclusion. But you might have noticed also, even in our Westminster Shorter Catechism, they include that in a question and answer. Of course, they were going on the uh, uh, earlier versions as well. So what should we conclude? Well, here's how I think we need to look at it. Whether it's truly in Matthew 6 and in Luke or not, it is definitely a truth that is clear throughout Scriptures. I'm going to show you that in just a moment. Therefore, there's no problem, in my view, with praying it in the Lord's Prayer, with it being in our catechism. There is no inaccuracy. I think it's a, a, a great ending to that pattern prayer. And I think it expresses truth that is in Scripture, that is clearly in Scripture about God. That last phrase is a beautiful phrase. Previous to that in the Lord's Prayer, uh, we have the petitions, give us this day, forgive us, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. In other words, I have these needs, but then here's the application. The last phrase does what basically the first phrase does, and that is it points us to God, not to, not to us. To say, this is 
This is about the supremacy of God, and it's not about me and my needs. So let me show you where uh, I see this in the Scripture. And by the way, these principles are throughout Scripture, but there are some that I think uh, just pop out, and I think it's very possible that these passages may even be ones that uh, somebody early on said this, this would be a, a wonderful ending for the, the prayer. In Daniel chapter 4, it talks about the kingdom forever. Let me just read it to you. How great are His signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation <clears throat> to generation. So here's the emphasis on that kingdom being forever and forever, and the implication of that is what? What difference does that make? Well, we're talking access here. Let's say you've made a, a purchase of uh, some expensive item uh, <coughs> in a, a local store over on Harbison. And uh, you get it home, and, and whatever the item is, there's something to where it's not what you thought it was, and you need to take it back and get satisfaction for it. And so you go to the store clerk who is... Um, uh, very, very uh, polite and accommodating. This is my story, so I can make it that way, okay? <laughs> They're very accommodating and everything, but then when you say, I need, uh, you know, I, I need to, to bring this back, they say to you, oh, we can't do that. We, we don't accept these back. Um, and you appeal, and they say, I've I don't have the authority. Okay, well, can I speak to your boss then? And so they bring out an assistant manager. You go through the same thing. They are just as accommodating, but they say, oh, you know what, I'm, I'm not able to do that. Uh, you appeal then to the manager of the store, same thing. And, the, you know, when you continue to make the appeal, finally they say, well, you know, here's, Here's the store owner's number. Would you, would you like his home number? You know. So you call the store owner at home, and he says, well, sure, we'll take that back. Now, why can he do that? Because it's his dominion. That's his kingdom. He has all authority there he can do what he wants. So, who are you going to appeal to? Well, the answer is to the one with the authority. And that's what this says about God. That He is that ultimate appeal because He is uh, the Creator and the owner forever of this kingdom. It's his domain. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. That's who we go to. And then the second phrase in the conclusion, and we used this passage earlier from 1 Chronicles 29. It talks about complete power. 
complete power. First Chronicles 29.11, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness. Listen how parallel this is to the end of the Lord's Prayer as we know it. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you're exalted as head above all. So we're, we're talking here in terms of complete power about power without limits and that's something that is other than what we normally talk about. When we talk about power, uh, we, we measure it, whether it is the, the power of a, a tornado, an F5, or a hurricane. We give them a number. Or the caliber of a, of a gun, or electricity, or whatever it is, we talk in terms of the... How much power can be there? You know, when I was a, a teenager, it, w- it was about how much you could bench press. But in that, it was all comparison to one another. And, it, and it, it wasn't an ultimate power. And that's what makes what we're saying here and what is said in First Chronicles completely different. And we are attributing that to God in these phrases. And then the last part of 1 Chronicles 29.11 talks about His deserved glory. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is Yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. And You're exalted as head above all. So we... We talk about the implications. Uh, uh, we'll do that in, in a moment. But literally, when we talk about glory, that word talks about a, a heaviness or a, a weightiness. It has to do with, with value. Now, think about, we, we, we've mentioned the Westminster Confession of Faith, a shorter catechism, and we've used that every week in terms of what it says about each petition and so on. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, you, you go back all the way to the first question, what is man's chief end? And many of you will recognize this. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So that's the starting point. Glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. You know what the last catechism question is? the one we read today. How appropriate. You know, it bookends with the glory of God. And that's what we, we see here. What does the conclusion of the Lord's Prayer teach us? So remember, we said earlier that this is about the, the supremacy of God. Now, theology is important always. But what's our response to this? How will we respond to knowing that He is the one that that deserves all glory, that has the kingdom forever, and He has all power, complete power? 
that's where I want to go with the application. And I don't know what it could be in God's providence other than thanksgiving. We see here in the, the passage that I read earlier. Let's take a look at this, Luke 17. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between, this is verse 11, traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. Uh, we're going to go through this very quickly, but the main significance there is that uh, because it's a border, you have uh, uh, Jews and Samaritans near each other. That's going to come into play in just a moment. And then in verse 12 of Luke 17, as he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. Now, I can't possibly do that justice here. Because if I did that justice, it would startle you. You, you, you know, you'd be covering your ears because what we're seeing here is that these ten men who had leprosy, they're in a miserable state, and they are, they're calling out in desperation as if this is my last chance. That's how they're shouting toward Jesus. Now, their miserable state is not so much because they were in pain. Because they weren't in pain. That's the problem with leprosy. You see, what, what happens is, uh, in, in modern day, it's, it's called Hansen's disease, if you ever hear of it. But what happens is that you begin to lose feeling. And so you can't, you know, if you were to, uh, you know, have a hammer for some reason and smash your finger, you, you wouldn't even know it. You would just keep going. And then it could get infected and gangrene and all, the, all that can happen with all of that. And so what, what would tend to happen with lepers is that, um, you know, their extremities, their nose, their ears, things like they would... Uh, they'd begin to lose them and die piece by piece. It's contagious. And that's where their misery came from. Because when they were diagnosed with it, they were absolutely separated. Let me read you uh, a sad uh, command. In Leviticus 13, uh, verse 45, it says this. This is how they were to deal. The leprous person who has the disease should wear torn clothes. Let the hair of his head hang loose. He shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. So they had to leave their family. Some commentators 
think that, that uh, when they cried out unclean, of course, the reason for that was so that uh, people coming near them could make a wide berth around them. They didn't know what it was to have hugs anymore or shake hands or anything like that. Some commentators think that it was as much as 75 yards that people had to walk around them. And that's why they had to shout it out. So you imagine the desperation here. Verse 14, when he saw them, he said, go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Now, this is different from the healing of the leper recorded uh, earlier in Luke 15. In this case that we're reading today, Jesus doesn't touch them. He doesn't say, you're healed. He tells them to do what by law they had to do in order to be restored back to their family and society. And what had to happen was the priest had to declare them clean and then they could go back to living the way they were. But barring a miracle... That didn't happen. In lots of ways, these, these ten lepers are similar. They're all going through the same thing, all determined to do something about it. They all probably heard about Jesus and believed that maybe they heard about the, the other leper that he touched and was healed, and, and so they were determined to believe that he might take pity on them. In acknowledging that, they, they cried out to Him as the Master. And in obedience to Christ's command, they go toward the priests. And all are healed. But at that point, the similarity ends. Luke records what happens next. Verse 15. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back. Praising God in a loud voice, he threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. As they were walking toward the priests, healing took over their bodies. Evidently, feeling was restored, blood circulation, because they were completely healed. Limbs must have grown back, maybe fingers, maybe hands grew back. Then after experiencing the healing, one turned around and went back to Jesus. And as he did, with a loud voice, he was praising God. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And then Luke points out something that almost seems like it's out of place. It says, and he was a Samaritan. Now why, why do they say that? Well, if you know anything about what was going on there, Samaritans uh, uh, were considered to be awful people by the Jews. They didn't associate. They called the Samaritans dogs. They were less than human. And yet there they are, the ten of them all together. Suffering breaks down barriers, doesn't it? I've seen uh, many of you that are on 
on Facebook how you've changed your picture to uh, have your picture with uh, the colors of the French flag over your picture. Suffering breaks down barriers. We see that and we see it here. So Jesus asks a question to this one Samaritan or whoever was there that came back. Weren't ten healed? Now he knew the answer to that. He knew he had healed all ten. Where are the other nine? And then he grieves Jesus. But his, his grief is not because he wasn't thanked, but it's because the glory of his Father was stolen by those who didn't come back. Look what he says in 18 and 19. Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. It's interesting. Even here, he is jealous only for the glory of the Father. That's what the thanks is about. The Samaritan then experiences healing for a second time that day. The first being physical healing and the second one a spiritual healing. So the question is just for us. Which group will we be in? The nine that are blessed and continue on about their business, rejoicing in the blessings but never turning back or the one who comes back. May God help us today, tonight in our community groups, this afternoon, this week, Tuesday when we minister to people from our community, Thursday when we're with our families to be the one who comes back and can do nothing but cry out with a loud voice with thanksgiving and all glory to God who has the kingdom forever, who has all power and deserves all glory.